0: Good evening. It is an honor and privilege to bring the word to you this evening. We'll be going to Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. At Providence, for the last two years almost now, we've been going through the Gospel of John, are just now nearing the end, so this is a one that was fresh uh, last week for us. John, chapter 19, 38 through 42. And the title of the sermon is "The Garden Tomb." Hear now the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Praise John nineteen thirty-eight through forty two tells us of the burial of Jesus Christ in a garden tomb by two lesser known disciples. John takes us from the cross to the garden. And these details are very purposeful. John could have just told us that the body of Jesus was taken to a tomb. But no, John wants us to know that this tomb is in a garden. And that this garden with a new tomb was in the place where Jesus was crucified. And it's interesting that John has given us this garden theme, this garden motif, as a framework We see that the garden frames the entire passion narrative from John 18 to John 20. Jesus is arrested in a garden, and now he is crucified and buried in a garden, and he will rise from the dead in a garden. So there's an obvious garden theme. And the reason it is here is not only because Jesus was literally buried in a garden and raised in a garden, but we are seeing a contrast between the first garden in Genesis and the second garden here in John. And it is related to the first Adam and to the second Adam. Why does John do this? He does this to show you the far surpassing worth of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. But think with me again about the contrast. Adam, in the Garden of Eden, was the Son of God. Jesus, in this garden, is the eternal Son of God incarnate. Adam was placed in the Garden of Eden as a prophet, priest, and king, and failed in his active obedience. Jesus was placed in this garden and not only offered perfect, lifelong, active obedience as prophet, priest, and king, opening the gates of heaven for us, but at the same time was the perfect sacrifice, offering a perfect, lifelong, passive obedience, culminating on the cross to atone for sin, not of his own. Adam, in the Garden of Eden, allowed a serpent to enter and speak words of deception, blasphemy, and lies, while Christ, the last Adam, has crushed the serpent's head in this garden and did not heed the voice of the serpent in the wilderness. Adam in the garden of Eden stood idly by while his bride fell into sin and deceit by the serpent. Jesus, on the other hand, defends his bride by laying down his life for her in this garden. And by his death, he crushes the serpent's head. Adam sinned in the garden of Eden. Jesus was sinless, only ever perfectly obedient to his Father in heaven. Adam in the Garden of Eden covered his nakedness with with fig leaves and hid among the trees from God. Jesus, on the other hand, had all his clothing taken from him and was naked and exposed, bearing the shame, bearing the guilt, bearing sin, not of his own, while hanging on a tree for the entire world to see. Adam brought a curse over mankind and over the earth. The thorns and thistles would dominate man and victimize man. And the earth would eventually reclaim man in the dust of death. Jesus, in this garden, wears those thorns as a crown. He bears the curse for his people as our servant king. In the Garden of Eden, man came under the judgment of death and sin. Adam died spiritually the day that he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He would also die physically as well one day. Adam made the Garden of Eden a tomb. It became a place of death. Jesus, in this garden, makes a tomb into a garden. John has pointed us to the crucified Christ over and over and over again. John has kept us near the cross so that we might behold his glory, the glory of the unique Son of the Father, the glory of his suffering. Remember that the gospel can be summed up with the two estates of Christ, Christ in his humiliation and Christ in his exaltation. And there is so much more to see, really. The best is yet to come. But here we are still beholding the glory of Christ's humiliation. Remember the words of our shorter catechism. Question 27. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? The answer? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. The cross, brothers and sisters, is just the apex of his humiliation. And notice it continues for a time after his death. This burial is still part of his humiliation. On the other hand, his exaltation is described like this. Shorter Catechism 28. Wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation. Christ's exaltation consisteth in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. So John is continuing to show us the glory of the humiliated Christ till resurrection day in chapter 20. John has taught us to survey the wondrous cross, and the world will not see it like you do, brothers and sisters. The Spirit has made you alive to see the wondrous works of God, You look upon the cross and you don't see defeat. You see victory. You see the glory of Jesus in all his shame. You see power in his weakness. You see your Lord wearing the purple robe and crown of thorns in mockery. But what you see is your king of glory. And you see his cross as his royal throne. In the section previous to this, the side of Christ is pierced, and the water and the blood which flowed from his side uh, recalls the Garden of Eden and the life-sustaining waters that flowed from it to water the garden. We read of the river of life in Revelation 22, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And then we read of the invitation by the Spirit and the bride, let the one who is thirsty come, Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And you look back at the cross and and you realize that cross was the throne of God the Son and out of his side came the river of life. And you see that glory and you drink of that water by faith and you worship that glory. And it is that water which gives life to all who drink. It's a gift of the Spirit. You would never have wanted to drink it before the Spirit effectually called you to faith. But now, it's all you ever wanted. It's all you ever wanted. Because it's Christ. He is the river of God's delight and of your delight. This is a new garden, brothers and sisters. This is the last Adam. He gives his life. And by giving his life, he gives life. He makes the grave a garden. And he is indeed the gardener. In fact, when Mary Magdalene speaks to Jesus after the resurrection, she at first supposes him to be the gardener. So let me tell you something. She wasn't wrong. Jesus creates a life-giving garden out of a grave. And the cross doesn't just look like a device of execution anymore. For those given... Eyes of faith, it becomes the only tree in this garden. It becomes for us the tree of life. But our text begins with the words after these things, and we find the story transitioning from the cross of Christ to the burial of Christ. And what really stands out is the special care devoted to Jesus' body. And John introduces us to Joseph of Arimathea. Look with me at verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Who was Joseph of Arimathea? Well, he appears in all the Gospels in connection with the burial of Jesus. Mark tells us that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, Matthew tells us he was wealthy. Mark and Luke mention that he was looking for the kingdom of God. Luke mentions that he was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action to crucify the Lord. Both Matthew and John refer to Joseph as a disciple of Jesus. But John, John adds one small detail that Matthew does not. John tells us, yes, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple of the Lord Jesus, because he feared the Jews. But take notice here. Take notice. Something, it seems, has changed. We see Joseph approach Pilate, not in the dark and cover of night, but here in the afternoon of Good Friday. Pilate gives Joseph permission to take away the body of Jesus. And so he comes and takes Jesus away. Luke writes that Joseph took Jesus' body down from the cross and wrapped him in a linen shroud and lays him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. Something has changed. Joseph has put his fear aside, it seems, and takes care of the body of Jesus. Remember, it was the Jews who requested that Jesus' body come down from the cross. But it is not the Jews who take his body down from the cross. They want nothing to do with the cross. They want nothing to do with Jesus. But Joseph of Arimathea, he does. And the question is, why? You might think that Joseph is the main character at this point, in this section of the gospel. But it is Jesus. Joseph is drawn to the cross, brothers and sisters. And the reason he is drawn to the cross is because he has been drawn to Jesus. And he desires to give Jesus a proper burial. John is not drawing our attention to Joseph or Pilate or the Jews. He continues to draw our attention to Jesus. The Jesus who said in John 12, verse 32, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Joseph of Arimathea comes forward as one who is drawn to the cross, drawn to the crucified Christ, lifted up from the earth, and already Jesus is drawing people to himself. Joseph no longer fears the Jews. He loves Jesus because he is drawn to Jesus. And Joseph is not alone. Look at verse 39. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. This is the only mention of Nicodemus at the cross. This is the third time John has mentioned him. The first time in John 3, and the second time in John 7, verses 50 through 52. Remember that in John 3, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness. He was afraid of being identified publicly with Jesus. And remember that John often uses night and darkness metaphorically for moral and spiritual darkness. It's a reference to the darkness then that had overcome Nicodemus's heart. And John reminds us of that here in verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. John reminds us, this is the Nicodemus that came to Jesus by night. Remember the fearful Nicodemus with inadequate faith in chapter 3? And then we're in, reintroduced to him again in chapter 7. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus under the cover of darkness in chapter 3, exposes the hypocrisy of the Sanhedrin in chapter 7, who want to arrest Jesus. And so Nicodemus brings up what the law rightfully says. He says Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Now, he doesn't come out and defend Jesus. He only manages a procedural point. And he's not mentioned again until John 19. And he's different. Something has changed. Nicodemus comes not under the cover of darkness. He comes to the cross in the light of the day, like Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus does not fear the Jews any longer. He is drawn to the cross of Christ. The light that pierces the darkness has pierced Nicodemus' heart. And he is drawn into that light like a regenerated new creational moth. He is drawn to Christ. The darkness does not define him any longer. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And it's interesting that both of these men are devout Jews. Jews. In the last section, John quotes Zechariah 12 and 13 concerning the reversal for the house of David. Let me read that section to you. Zechariah 12 starting with verse 10 and 13.1 And I will pour out of the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him. As one weeps, over a firstborn. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Some of the house of David, Israelites, are coming to faith because of the cross. They are coming to the fountain, coming to Jesus, becoming Christians. They are, becoming, they are being cleansed from sin and uncleanness by the life-giving death of Jesus Christ. Nicodemus and Joseph, secret disciples, they have now cast their fears aside. The light has shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God has granted to Nicodemus new birth from above. Jesus told him in chapter 3 that the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus, remember, he didn't understand. He didn't understand We see here in John 19 the effect of the Spirit giving birth to Nicodemus. Nicodemus and Joseph are sheep of the good shepherd. They are drawn to the cross. They come to Jesus during the day. And notice what Nicodemus brings with him. He comes to the cross to take the body of his Lord, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. 75 pounds in weight. Remember that when Mary anointed the feet of the Lord with pure Nard in chapter 12, she brought one pound. It was worth a year's wage. It wasn't, it was excessive in a good way. She brought one pound, a year's wage. It was a lavish amount. She used it all at once on Jesus. She anoints his feet the feet that carry the good news, the feet that are the good news, the feet that only walk in righteousness. She anoints these feet, and not only does she anoint his feet, she she stoops down and wipes his feet with her hair, and she takes that oil that is on Jesus' feet and takes it to herself. And so what was on his feet is now crowning her head. She smells like Jesus now. She, in a way, imitates her Lord. She identifies with Jesus. And Nicodemus, who is obviously a wealthy man, he brings about 75 pounds. It's over a lifetime of wages. It's About 100 years of wages. It's, the, it's for the entire crucified body of Jesus. Mary gave her all and anointed Jesus as the suffering king. Nicodemus gives his all and anoints Jesus as the crucified king. In fact, it's what Jesus requested in John 12:7 after rebuking Judas and defending Mary's devotion to him. Jesus says the anointing is for the day of his preparation for burial. You see Mary acted as a slave to anoint the feet of her Lord and but it is Jesus who serves his sheep by pouring out for them his entire eternal inheritance given to him by his father. Nicodemus brings a lifetime of spices to the body of the crucified Christ. It is an extraordinary amount, a lifetime of spices, worthy of a crucified king. also serves as a reflection of what has been poured out to us by Christ himself on the cross. He gives to us a lifetime of... An eternity of his righteousness, his obedience, his justification, his sanctification, his adoption. He gives to us redemption, applies it to us after accomplishing it for us. Nicodemus comes with spices worthy of the king. He is greater than all other kings. He is your crucified king, who upon the throne of the cross draws people to himself. He draws Joseph to himself Joseph no longer fears. He has come to the one who casts out all fear. He draws Nicodemus to himself. Nicodemus no longer dwells in darkness. He has come to the light of the world. And he draws you. And he draws me to himself. Especially on the Lord's day. First day of the week. So Can you imagine the smell of 75 pounds of spices? It is a reminder that the sacrifice of Jesus was a sweet smelling aroma to his Father in heaven. His Father has given a people to his Son, and he has given his Son to a people, and so they take him. And notice what they do in verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. They clothed the Lord. He was naked upon the cross, his garments taken from him by his executioners. And here we see his sheep, those whom he first loved, they love him. They have been purchased by him, and we see their devotion to him. They clothe him, while he has clothed them in his righteousness. They are the fruit of Jesus' labor. Their redemption has been accomplished this day on the cross. His body is wrapped tightly with linen cloths from from head to toe. There would be one wrapped around his head to keep his mouth closed. He's wrapped up like Lazarus was wrapped up. Because Jesus is dead. The focus is not so much on Jewish burial customs here. The point is that what we confess when we recite the Nicene Creed, he was... Crucified for us. Under Pontius Pilate, he suffered and was buried. He goes to death's domain. He goes to death's own territory. The spices are probably mixed together and applied to his body under the linens and around the linens. 75 pounds. Do you know what that is telling you this morning, or this evening, brothers and sisters? It's telling us that in Christ... The stench of death is covered up. It is swallowed up. And in its place is the fragrance of life. This is not Lazarus' tomb where the stench of death would be smelled. This tomb, it becomes a garden where life springs forth. So Christ goes into the grave. He goes into death's dark den a place of dread, a place of terror. He goes in, summoning death to overcome death. He disarms death, disarms it of all of its terror. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, grave, where is your destruction? Hosea thirteen: fourteen. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O oh, death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? He endures the darkness of death, brothers and sisters, so that you would be saved from it. It's the completion of his estate of humiliation. This is what he was born to do, to die for sin, not his own. He descended from heaven, born of the Virgin Mary, born into an estate of sin and misery, and humbles himself to the point of death, submitting his body to to the grave Psalm 22 verse 15 you lay me in the dust of death those are the words of Jesus Christ the stench of death is swallowed up and what is left is the fragrance of life where Adam turned the garden into a grave Jesus he turns the grave into a garden Look with me at our final verses this evening, 41 and 42. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Notice that John writes that in the place where Jesus was crucified, in Golgotha, the place of execution, there was a garden. And John connects the crucifixion of Jesus with a garden. Jesus was arrested in a garden. And he's now, he was crucified and buried in a garden. He will rise again from the dead in a garden. And again, John taking our minds back to Genesis, the Garden of Eden. It was the earthly replica of the heavenly temple. It was the earthly temple dwelling of the glory of God. His glory filled the garden just as his glory filled the heavenly temple, but in a provisional way. Its life and beauty replicates heaven. It points to heaven. That's its purpose. It's just a replica. It's not heaven, but it's design, as you would look upon the mountain of God. There would be to lift your eyes to heaven. Mountains bring your, fo- your focus Upward. Eden orients Adam's mind beyond earth to heaven where the glory of God permanently dwells. And do you remember what was in the garden? Two trees that stood out from all the others. Genesis 2.9 And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And do you remember what Adam did? He didn't obey the Lord. He listened to the serpent. He ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He fell from his original righteousness and communion with God. He became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. And because Adam was the representative of all mankind, the guilt of of this sin was imputed. And the same death in sin and the same corrupted nature passed on, inherited, conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. And it is from this original corruption. All mankind are utterly indisposed, are all disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil. And it is out of this original sin that all transgressions proceed from. Adam Turn the, grave into a, to, uh, turn the garden into a grave. Animals died in order for their nakedness to be covered. Adam and Eve died spiritually as soon as they ate. And they would be expelled from the garden. And they would, they would die in the wilderness. And when you read the genealogy of Genesis 5 that tells of Adam's de- descendants to Noah, over and over and over, you hear the words, And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. Eight times. Genesis begins with life in the garden of God's life-giving presence. Sin enters in by Adam, and Genesis ends with the death of Joseph in Egypt, embalmed and placed in a coffin outside the land of promise. And the reason that happened was because of Adam. Adam made the garden a grave. All who are in Adam died. He didn't crush the serpent's head. He didn't lay down his life for his bride. He ate of the forbidden fruit. The Apostle John shows us a better way. He shows us another kind of grave, another kind of garden, and there is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil in this garden. There is no covenant of works for you to accomplish, brothers and sisters. That was the purpose of that tree. It was the probation tree. There is no covenant of works for you in this garden. And do you know why? Jesus has accomplished it for you. And the only tree you will find in this garden, here in John 19, is the tree of life. It is the cross of Christ. There is no test here for you to earn heaven from God. There is just the tree of the cross, and what hangs upon this tree is the offer of the gospel. That is its fruit. It is Jesus Christ crucified. He really died. He was really buried. He has crushed the serpent's head. He has laid down his life for his bride, for you and for me. He has opened the gates of heaven for us by his lifelong active obedience and has imputed that active obedience to us. He completed the covenant of works, and he has imputed his lifelong passive obedience to us. He has atoned for our sin as our Passover lamb. He gives his life that you may live. He suffers hell to give you heaven. He bears the curse of thorns for us to free us from it. He hangs naked upon the cross so that he can clothe us with his righteousness, and it is by his wounds that we are healed. His tomb becomes a garden. It becomes a womb of life. Jesus will be the first person to walk out of this new tomb in a garden on his own power. It's a new tomb. John tells us this tomb was close at hand. It was there ready to receive Jesus. It's never been used When Jesus completed redemption, everything in the immediate surroundings proves to be available to him as though it was long reserved for him and made ready for him. It's a new tomb. There has never been a grave like this one. Jesus goes to this grave to defeat it. He goes to the grave to overcome the grave. He goes to the grave to defeat the last enemy, to defeat death He goes to the grave to sanctify it. He goes to the grave in order that the grave would serve us. He takes away the sting of death. You don't die, brothers and sisters, in order to make a payment for your sins. That was done by Christ on your behalf. Your death is only a dying to sins. It stops you from sinning. It ushers you into eternal life. For you, brothers and sisters... To live is Christ and to die is gain. Death is no threat to your salvation. It cannot separate you from Christ. You belong to him. The grave for you, brothers and sisters, is only a bed of rest for your physical body. While your soul departs and goes to be with the Lord in heaven, your grave is a bed of rest. It is a perfumed bed. It is the bed of Christ that you go. the place where he prayed, where he He went before you and made that bed secure. His grave becomes your grave, and you become not just conquerors, but more than conquerors through him. Because, like Jesus, you will be raised. You already are spiritually speaking, you have died with him and have been raised with him in newness of life. Do not fear death, brothers and sisters. Remember I spoke about Joseph lying dead in a coffin in Egypt at the end of Genesis. I am proclaiming to you this evening that Jesus laid in Joseph's tomb. And he has entered into that grave in advance of his people. In advance of you. In advance of me. And in Genesis 46, God tells Jacob not to be afraid to go to Egypt. Egypt is synonymous in the Old Testament with death. And God tells Jacob not to be afraid. You know why God says this? Listen to God speak to Jacob in Genesis 46, verses 3 through 4. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, Jacob. Because I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will bring you up again. Jesus Christ died and was buried. He goes down to the death of Egypt. And to the grave, he goes before you. He is with you. And he brings you up again from the grave because he himself made the grave a garden and was raised on the third day. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Proverbs 14 32 says that the righteous finds refuge in his death. Our refuge, brothers and sisters, is union with the crucified and risen Christ. Your body is united to him. Your spirit is united to him. And you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And you will walk through it. Because your good shepherd leads you to his cross. And to his grave that he has turned into a garden. And you, knowing that, you sing the psalm of David all the days of your life. I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff They comfort me. John mentions at the end of chapter 19 that Jesus is buried on the Jewish preparation day. How much more true can it be? Can that be when you look back after the resurrection? John is telling us there is more to come. The best is yet to come because this preparation of wrapping the body of Jesus with the fragrances of life and placing him into a tomb is preparing us for a resurrection day. He has gone to the tomb to leave it empty for us. Come to the tomb of Christ with Joseph and Nicodemus. See the grave in the garden. See them bear his body into the grave where death would be defeated. See the grave that will be turned into a garden You do not have to be held captives to the fear of death, brothers and sisters. It has lost its sting. It cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ. And you share in the victorious death and resurrection of your Lord and King. And when your day comes, if the Lord tarries, when the death dew lies cold on your brow, Jesus' hand shall close your eyes. And you will open your eyes in heaven and see your Lord face to face, the one who has went down to Egypt with you and has brought you back up by making the grave a garden for his sheep. Praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel concerning your son. We thank you for his Perfect, lifelong, active obedience imputed to us and his perfect, lifelong, passive obedience by which he forgives us our sin. Continue to remind us, Lord, that he has made the grave a garden and that there is nothing to fear. Death has lost its sting. It only serves us now to stop us from sinning and to bring us into the glorious presence of our Lord and Savior, who we will worship for eternity, face to face, without a veil. Praise you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.